Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. This week we are, in a way, expanding the topic of last week's podcast to not just include the relationship between theonomy and money, but how post-millennialism or as it is more commonly known on social media, how hashtag datpostmill fits into the mix. Theonomy is a podcast about theonomy and economics, and like many theonomists, I, and probably quite a few of you listeners, are also postmill. I think talking about how theonomy will actually work in the real world is difficult unless you also talk about postmill because the hope of postmill is what gives me confidence that theonomy will one day actually be something that is done in practice in the world and not just a great idea that stay in theological papers and never gets to reality. Hey everyone, so recording this later and dropping it in here, re-recording over what I originally said for the few housekeeping things. I just wanted to say, if you listened to last week's episode, you already know this, but I ended up pushing this episode back a week, so when I say last week, I'm actually meaning two weeks prior, what I was just saying there a minute ago about the episode last week, that was actually episode two weeks ago about theonomy and economics, because last week I ended up dropping that episode about preparing for a possibly dark road ahead, which you should go check out if you've not already done so. So the housekeeping items, if you have any ideas for podcasts, please let me know. PM me on my personal social media or on Theana Money's or email me at theanamoney at gmail.com. And uh, also please subscribe to the podcast feed, turn on auto downloads, like it, rate, review, tell your friends about it, all that great stuff. And also, since I want to keep Theana Money in keeping with the Dorian principle, I'm not going to sell the teaching with Theana Money, but t-shirts aren't gospel ministry. They are actually a good so I did make a bonfire for Theana Money, if you want to go check it out. I put uh, several t-shirts on there. going to be slowly adding more and more. Right now, I have a Make Theonomy Great Again shirt that you might really like. You can get a t-shirt, a hoodie, and you know different styles, different colors. So if you really like that, then... It would be much appreciated if you went on there and bought some. It could help me get more money to do more ads and try to get it out there and things like that. I'm not trying to make a ton of money off of this. Bonfire gives you the recommended prices for things, and I actually dropped my prices below what the recommended prices were, which is directly cutting into any profits I make from selling the shirts. But I wanted to do that to make it cheaper for you all. That URL is bonfire.com slash store slash theonomoney. So you can go there, check out some cool theonomy or economics shirts and hoodies and stuff like that. And yeah, so with that, I hope you all enjoyed the episode this week. 
So this week we are relating post-mill to theonomy and economics, like how we related the latter two alone to each other last week. My plan is to make this week's episode be a bit more a bit more about the theology behind it, how they in scripture and in concept relate to each other, and next week to put some meat on it and give some more practical advice that you can follow in the real world. Not that this week is not practical, it just gives the necessary foundation for the practical stuff later on. There is a reason why Paul gives 11 chapters of theology in Romans before he starts applying that theology practically to our lives in the last five chapters, and Romans is not alone in Paul's epistles where he does something like that. It's his typical structure in his letters. So how does post-mill relate to theonomy and economics? First, let's try to focus on the relationship between post-mill and theonomy, then from there relate it also to money or economics. Last week when I related theonomy to economics, and if you haven't listened to that episode, it would be great to check it out and then come back to this one since they are somewhat built off of each other. It isn't necessary, but it could help. Last week when I did that, I started by giving some definitions, so doing so again today would be helpful as well. I defined theonomy and economics last week, so this week let's give a brief summary of what postmillennialism is. Postmillennialism is one of four main eschatological views in Christianity. Eschatological is the adjective form of eschatology, which is the study of end times or last things. It comes from the Greek words eschatos and logos. Eschatos means end or last and logos means word, and it is a common suffix for the study of something, such as theology or archaeology. So eschatology is the study of the end times and what scripture has to teach about such things. Since those things have not happened yet and apocalyptic literature, even in the Bible, can be difficult, there are multiple views within little o orthodoxy which means that you can differ quite a bit on this area and not be a heretic. We can also be brothers and sisters in Christ even with disagreements on this. The four main views of eschatology within orthodoxy are dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. There are quite a few more orthodox views than just those four because within each of those four groups there are subgroups because there are people who would define or explain things differently within each of those four bigger umbrellas. So they are really just the overarching categories of eschatological positions. In each of those, you heard the word millennium with a prefix. The main difference between each of these four is when Jesus returns for the second coming in relation to the millennium mentioned in Revelation 20. Premillennialism says that Jesus comes back before the millennium starts, and postmillennialism says that Jesus returns after the millennium is completed. Postmill finds some of its key texts in the Old Testament, which is contrary to the claim some have made that postmill can't find any support in the Old Testament. But also important to postmill is that texts such as these 
are often among the most commonly cited Old Testament passages in the New Testament, going against the opposite claim that Postmill only looks at the Old Testament and not the New Testament. The first one I want to look at is Psalm 110, specifically the first verse. It reads, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. That's coming at you from the Legacy Standard Bible. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, a concept supported by the New Testament, and he will be sitting there as his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. So Jesus' enemies are being made his footstool. They are being crushed beneath him until death, his last enemy, is defeated as Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 25 and 26. The second Old Testament passage I want to look at is Psalm 2. I did an entire podcast episode on Psalm 2 called Jesus Crushing Nations, which you should check out if you have not already. Psalm 2 teaches us that rebellious nations will be crushed by King Jesus if they do not repent, and that the nations are the inheritance of Jesus. Lastly, I want to look at Habakkuk 2.14. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the seas. What these passages teach us is that Jesus is king and all of his enemies are being made a stool for him to set his feet upon until the last enemy, death, is defeated. As this proceeds, the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the water covers the seas, which is all of it because the seas are water. You can't have water not cover the seas by definition of the word sea. So Postmo teaches and this is a short explanation of Postmill so that we can get to the major topic of this episode. Postmill teaches that the world will progressively increase and get better and better as the gospel goes out to all the nations and the percentage of the world who are Christians increases. At the second coming of Jesus, which I believe is still a long time away, probably at least one or two thousand years or more away, the vast majority of the world population will be Christians. That optimistic view of the future is where a lot of criticism of Postmill comes in. If you want some more details about Postmill when world events do not seem to support such an optimistic view of the future, check out the episode I did a couple months or so ago called Postmill When the World is Collapsing. In short, Postmill is like the stock market. There are spikes and dips. But the general trend is upwards, no matter how severe a dip may be or how long it may last. If you want more information than just that simple summary, check out that episode I just mentioned. So now that we all understand what Postmill is, and if you listen to last week's episode, we all understand what theonomy and economics are, we can begin to talk about how they all relate to one another. First, Postmill to theonomy then both to economics. I think it is a fair point to say that Postmill is the driving engine of theonomy. Another way to put it is that I think theonomy will be successful because of Postmill. I believe that someone with a pessimistic eschatology can recognize that theonomy is the correct position on God's law, but that without Postmill, they likely doubt that it will 
one day be the driving force of many, if not most, nations around the globe. More just the ideal that might take place here or there, but never as the majority world position. As a post-millennialist and a theonomist, I think that as world history continues, because of post-mill, that theonomy will be accomplished at large on the world stage. Let's talk about why that is. Theonomy is not a top-down approach that forces Christianity on a nation's citizens by the sword and the power of the civil magistrate, which, as Paul says in Romans 13, is the sword. Theonomy isn't electing enough Christian politicians to vote our nation into being a Christian nation. Meanwhile, the vast majority of the citizens inside of it are not believers. That's Seven Mountain Dominionism, not theonomy. Theonomy teaches that the nations should govern their laws in accordance with God's word in general and God's Old Testament law specifically, but that they are in rebellion against God in this manner. If you think it's weird that the nations are in rebellion against God, remember the doctrine of total depravity and then think about what happens when a nation made up of totally depraved citizens develops laws for itself. This is especially the case when the Christians, the only ones who are not totally depraved, do not speak prophetically to the culture as we often see today. Psalm 2 says that nations in rebellion against God, unless they repent, they will suffer the wrath of King Jesus. Since nations are not humans, a nation itself cannot be cast into the lake of fire, but there are punishments that God brings on nations for their iniquity. Just look at the Canaanites when God drove them out before Israel, or what God did to Israel when they also rebelled against him. Theonomy seeks for nations at the national level to be obedient to God by the laws that they decree, because some laws are immoral and some are not. Theonomy doesn't teach that we do this by getting enough legislators and to the federal and various state congresses to pass laws that make us a Christian nation, then forcing Christianity on the citizens. However, theonomy is not opposed to getting legislators into office to pass just laws and undo sinful laws. I know people in my state's Congress who are running for that position and are doing so in an attempt to abolish abortion and undo other unjust laws or pass righteous laws. But that alone is not how a theonomous nation is formed. Legislation is one aspect of the approach, but it is not the most vital one. It is one that should be the result of the most vital one being successful. What is the most vital aspect of theonomy? It is the Great Commission. Without a post-mill view of the future, the Great Commission won't convert nations as a whole to Christ, and that is what we need for theonomy to be successful. Now, all Calvinists agree that the Great Commission will be successful, but post-millennialists define what successful means there a bit differently. Every Calvinist says that the Great Commission will be successful in that all of the elect will come to faith. In other words, every lost sheep will be found with no exceptions. However, post-mills and 
perhaps also optimistic historic pre-mills, think that at the end of this time in history, when the second coming happens, the majority of people on the planet at that time will be Christians, which means we think that God has elected a truly great multitude of people. Perhaps even the majority of humans who will ever exist will be God's elect. Other postmills might disagree with me on this, but I think that Romans 11 teaches that shortly before the second coming, ethnic Israel will see such a revival that it seems as though every Jew on the planet at the time is a Christian, and that this revival among Jews will lead to an even greater revival among Gentiles. So as a postmillennialist, I think that the general trend throughout history is that more and more people come to Christ at a faster rate than the population growth, so that the percentage increases. Thus, nations will literally be Christianized in that the majority of their population will be believers. And don't you think that a nation where the majority of its citizens are believers will have different laws than one where the majority are unbelievers? Maybe not if the believers are being discipled poorly, like by big Eva gospel coalition types who always complain about Christian nationalism without ever really telling us what that means. But if we have men of God who speak prophetically to the culture, like the Black Robe Regiment in early American history, then the very laws of that nation that has become majority Christian will change. And even if the former is the case at first, people in the latter category will rise up eventually and I believe the Holy Spirit will lead people to follow their teaching. God may not grant this at first, or he may grant it slowly over time, but a nation can only live with large-scale cognitive dissonance for so long. Humans will be pushed to consistency at some point. The cognitive dissonance I'm referring to there is having a nation be majority Christian and having laws the same as any secular nation, as if the faith has no bearing on politics. A nation's laws, after all, are the legislation of morality. Religion is by nature political. Who or what you worship will eventually come out in the voting booth, no matter how hard you try to suppress that and vote neutrally. After all, neutrality is a myth. So the Great Commission goes forth. It has gone forth, it is going forth, and it will continue to go forth. And it will be successful. Jesus doesn't just tell us to go, he tells us to therefore go. Well, actually, the emphasis in Greek is on making disciples. So it is less about go and make disciples. And it's more about, while going, make disciples. Anyway, he says to do that therefore. And the therefore refers to how he has all authority in heaven and on earth. You always have to ask what the therefore is there for. And in the Great Commission, it's because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is king and he has authority. And on that authority, we are to obey the Great Commission. The general trend of the Great Commission, again, with dips and recessions here and there, the general trend of the Great Commission is the conversion of nations. Over all of church history, 
we won't just see an individual here or an individual there, but we will see large groups of people and nations. This happens over time, not immediately. It is an individual here and an individual there over time until this one person here, that handful of people there, make up the majority in that nation. As faithful teachers and preachers exposit God's word for every aspect of life, not just for personal piety in your heart and your quiet time, but everything in every area, people will begin to change the laws in that now Christianized society. If the society was statist, like virtually every first world nation on the planet is right now, then that will likely involve a lot of abolishing unjust and overstepping laws, though writing new righteous laws will be involved as well. In short, that society, that nation, will become a theonomous nation. It won't be the 20% of the citizens who are Christians getting to seats of power and forcing it on everyone else. It will be done by the 80% or 90% who are believers passing laws in accordance with God's word, passing laws that will not make King Jesus crush that nation in Psalm 2 fashion. So now we see how postmill and theonomy are related to each other, but how do these two concepts relate to economics? They do so in much the same way as last week's episode explained how theonomy itself relates to economics. Theonomy gives us laws for all aspects of a nation's legislation, either by direct teaching in God's word or good and necessary consequence of God's word. Any aspects it doesn't teach on by one of those two is probably because that is not a role that the civil magistrate should take for itself. God's law doesn't teach us about the public education system that ancient Israel should have had, not because we are more developed than they were and God had not thought of it yet. God is omniscient and exists outside the boundary of time after all. But because public education is outside the responsibilities of the government. That falls under the jurisdiction of the family, not the jurisdiction of the state or government or civil magistrate or whatever other term you prefer. I touched on this topic a couple weeks ago with the episode titled Response to Baptist News, if you want to look at it in more detail. When I say that theonomy gives us laws for all aspects of a nation's legislation, I mean it. We have, in God's word, all that we need for explicit laws taught there, or examples to follow the spirit of the law and its good and necessary consequence, or at the very least, for guidelines for our laws. That includes economic laws. A nation that obeys God's word and its legislation will not encode into law things that violate God's word. For example, it will not create laws that allow for theft since that would violate one of the Ten Commandments. This postmillennial view of theonomy will change laws on the smaller scale and on the governmental level as well. That is, both micro and macro economics will change. Imagine how the day-to-day -day economic choices of people, what they buy or don't buy, investments, choices on how to use their scarce time, etc. Imagine how those choices will overall look different when the majority of people within a nation are Christians rather than unbelievers. I talked about this, or something close to this, a bit last week, 
but just take a moment to imagine how things might be different. Last week I gave an example about less money being spent on security of goods because with a more Christianized nation, there should be less people who make the economic choice of theft instead of working to earn their wages and doing the opposite of giving, meaning both putting off sin and putting on righteousness. Last week I gave an example about less money being spent on security of goods because with a more Christianized nation, there should be less people who make the economic choice of theft instead of working to earn their wages and doing the opposite of stealing by giving and charity, meaning both putting off sin and putting on righteousness, by giving to those in need, per Ephesians 4.28. So to summarize this week's episode, theonomy will not be successful, may be successful here or there, but not overall successful, not on a grand scale, without post-mill to give it the support it needs through the salvation of the nations. Not the salvation of nations themselves, the corporate entity of a nation cannot believe the gospel and be saved, but the salvation of the people within those nations by and large. Post-millennialism teaches that as a general trend, there will be more and more people who become believers throughout church history. Once a nation is primarily made up of Christians, it is only a matter of time before laws begin to change, if they haven't started already. Those laws will cover a wide variety of things. Taxes, abolishing abortion, putting charity into the hands of families and churches instead of the state, and many other issues that may or may not relate to economics. Some will relate to economics, some will not, but the point is that some of these theonomic laws will relate to economics. So postmill and theonomy are related to one another, and both are related to economics because they will over time cause even the economics of a nation to change. That was this week's episode of Theonomony. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace. Oh, you.